Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness. It's a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Joe Marino. He is one of the preeminent researchers on the Shroud of Turin. We'll be talking about some of his recent page papers, which can be found on academia.edu. And as a matter of fact, you can find those specifically at independent.academia.edu slash Joe Marino, capital J, capital M, all one word, independent.academia.edu slash Joe Marino. And then, of course, if you want to sign up for his email newsletter, it's a wealth of activity that's taking place every day and every week on the Shroud. And that's uh, you can reach out to him at jmarino240 at aol.com. So let me tell you a little bit about Joe. He has uh, an amazing background and, and especially many years of studying the Shroud. He has a BA in theological studies from St. Louis University. He's a longtime syndonologist, and he has researched, written, and lectured extensively on the Shroud since 1977, and he has recently retired from The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Joe believes the Shroud can be shown to be the burial cloth of Jesus, but that would make it only an interesting archaeological object. He, he does believe, though, that it's much more important for the spiritual message that it can bring. As a former Benedictine monk and Catholic priest, Joe believes that organized religion has often depicted Jesus as an unreachable deity whose standards we can never reach. With his work, he hopes to show that the shroud represents a more human Jesus, one who is someone we can not only approach, but as indicated in the Gospel of John, a person can even surpass in doing great things. It is his hope and desire that his work can get the message across, and it is his belief that this is the destiny to which he has been called, which is why he has been given the passion he possesses for the Shroud. Joe, welcome, and thank you for being here. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, thank you, and uh, uh, good to see you, too. So tell us about some of the recent work you've been doing. Well, let's see. I put out an article the other day uh, on academia that was uh, having to do with past testing uh, of the shroud and, and um, future proposals. Um, and then I also, um, I constantly update a lot of the articles um, on academia. And um, I last year I had written a rather extensive paper called uh, Documented References to the Shroud of Turin uh, before, what was that? I can always forget my own titles, before 1350 or something like that. Um, and I just added a postscript, which was uh, an unpublished article that I had written uh, a couple years ago, I guess, and that I didn't publish because um, Jack Marquardt was coming out with a, a book called The Hidden History uh, of the Shroud, which is a very good book. I've, I've highly recommend it. So I held off on that article, um, but I decided now that his book has been out for a while, uh, I've decided to add that article to my documented um, references 
paper. So that can be found there too. So now my, that paper is up to about uh, 54 pages or something like that. So you can keep busy with, with that one, of course, and a lot of, a lot of the other ones. Um, I always try to put other sources and references in my articles so that it's, you know, I document what I say and, and I give other sources so, so people um, can look up stuff themselves. It's great having the internet. You don't have to go through uh, uh, dusty libraries like I used to do to get all the print materials. Uh, and then the other uh, big thing on my radar right now is that um, I was approached by the um, uh, Mexican Center of Syndonology. And in May, they're going to have their 40th anniversary. And uh, they've asked me to present uh, virtually uh, a, a presentation. And um, I'm hoping that they'll let me do um, an update of my invisible reweave theory paper that I had last uh, presented in Ancaster, Ontario in 2019. Uh, and I've, I've gotten some additional information since then. So I have to um, uh, tidy that up for the possible presentation virtually in May for that. And then um, I guess the one other thing that I'm doing uh, that's significant is that I'm working with a group um, with Myra Adams, who you've had on the show. There's a She's trying to start a National Shroud of Turin exhibit. And as many people know, um, Myra's also been involved with the Museum of the Bible that had that wonderful exhibit, interactive exhibit. And we're in consultation with the Museum of the Bible right now uh, for their um, collaboration uh, to start the National Shroud of Turin exhibit. So um, those are some of the things on my plate. And um, it's it's never a dull moment in syndonology. There's something always something going on. There's several movies coming out soon, and um, there's lots of videos uh, always come out. And I I list those in my list that at the that I send to people, and that you mentioned that they can email me to get on the list. So lots of I expect 2023 to be an exciting year. And by the way, besides your book, I think I I think I wrote down just the names of people I know that are coming out with a book. And I think I've got eight on the list mm. now. And th those are the ones I know of. I imagine there might be a few more as well. Yeah, it certainly seems like there's uh, a lot of writing and a lot of good stuff coming out and and the wealth of, of papers and things like that. And I will admit, it's very hard to keep mm. up. I did want to yeah. ask uh, as well, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about one of your books, the uh, 1988 carbon 14 dating of the shroud of turin just give a brief uh, update on that and uh, go from there well let's see that was published uh what in uh fall of november 2020 i believe and um i knew that um it's 800 pages by the way so you're you know don't expect to read it in one night <laughs> um it's more of a reference book than anything um uh, and i knew that uh, you know, more material would come out and I didn't know if I would do a second edition or not, but I uh, first reserved a page on my website um, for kind of an overflow and, and a place to make corrections if needed and that sort of thing. So I did that at first and then I thought, well, 
I do so much on academia, I ended up copying and pasting that supplement. And that's one of the entries on my page. Uh, you know, it's called supplement to the 1988 C14 dating mm. of the Shroud of stunning expose. So there's about, I think, 80 additional entries um, on that. And it's, it's um, as I say, it's a supplement, but it kind of can be read as a standalone. It, it also goes in chronological order. And if you don't want to read 800 pages, you can kind of read the supplement and get a feel of the, the weird things that constantly went on both before, during, and after the testing. And it's my contention that um, there were a lot of politics, egos, and agendas involved, and that finding the, the truth about the dating of the Shroud was, was actually uh, a secondary consideration for uh, most of the <coughs> excuse me, participants. And um, so, um, yeah, I expect, um, you know, the, the, the flow of information for that is kind of slowed down finally, mm -hmm. and I, but I expected it to at some point, but I will keep that uh, supplement page open for adding any new tidbits I get. Yeah, it's uh, definitely fascinating. And I, uh, when I was reading it, I, I agree with you. Uh, what you put in there was uh, incredible about the, like you said, the politics, the agenda, and, and all of the other kind of non-scientific being neutral in the science uh, that that went on is uh, is is astounding and and so when you say the stunning expose I I think that's a really good subtitle for it so uh, you know and and very interesting uh, definitely worth a read and I you know I like reading that kind of stuff so it was uh, very fascinating thank you um yeah so uh, today though I wanted to talk about if we could is uh, one of the challenges that we have with the shroud is that the there's not really a good documented history prior to about 1350 and uh and then there's a big argument uh as to whether this uh this shroud it's called the shroud of besançon in france in troyes france and um and whether that one as potentially being fake, potentially being the shroud. And there's a whole story there and a lot of interesting things going on and wanted to talk about that. So uh, maybe we can um, uh, dig in there. You did. You also did a paper on that and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, my title on that was, was the painted cloth mentioned in the Diarcy's memorandum of, of 1389, the so-called shroud of Besançon? And um, I've got a picture on the front uh, page of that article, which is, it's a copy of the, whatever was the original bass and song cloth. And you will, the, the, the viewer will see how poorly art was. And this was from the 16th century, this particular copy that I have a picture of. It, it came from a book by Paul Vignon, uh, the French researcher. There's a English uh, translation of, of his book uh, from, I think it was 1902 when it was originally published and it came out in 1970. And it's really laughable, this copy. And I don't, I make a point in the paper that that whatever the original one was, the original Besson Song Cloth, probably wasn't much better artistically than, than this one. And apparently it was only the, um, 
or at least according to some accounts, it was the front image only and not the front and back. So that that should make it easier to determine, you know, where the where the real one was. But I I tell you, I I was going over a lot of this material last night and and this morning, and um, it's about as clear as mud. Um, <laughs> it's very confusing. Um, you got some people, um, including some historians, believing that the, the Shroud of Besançon was actually the Shroud of Turin. And you've got other people on the other side, including historians, that believe that there wasn't, wasn't even a Shroud of Besançon until the 16th century. Now, that, that kind of blows my mind because, um, you know, some people said, well, there was a, the Besançon cloth was in a fire in 1349. And then you got other people saying, well, it didn't even exist to the 16th century. So we're talking, you know, 200 years. It's like, come on, historians, <laughs> can't you can't figure out if at least there was or wasn't a cloth in Besançon in 1349? Um, and, you know, some priests have, have written some accounts and and some historians have criticized that because I know you have you also had Mario Lawton dress on your show and and he complained about some of the accounts that I have excerpts from he he says the priests are writing a novel and making up stuff in their stories but um you know Dr. Daniel Scavoni who's a a bona fide shroud historian um and unfortunately he's been in ill, ill health for a while uh for many years now actually um he believes the the best and song cloth is is the key to the missing years between 1204 and, and 1354, 1355, that, that date will vary a little. You'll see 1354, 55, and 57 is the first um, documented history of the Shroud. Uh, I mean, and that's only three year, a four year period. So that's not a big deal, I don't think. Um, but Scavoni believes the, the best in song cloth is, is the best explanation uh, for where the shroud was in those missing years. Now, Vignon, in his 1970 book, claimed that an, an archivist from the Besançon Library wrote that the, the shroud of, of Besançon was given to uh, Othon de la Roche in 1205 as a recompense for his um, his valor at the uh, siege of Constantinople. Um, and then he claims that in the 13th century, there was a, at Besançon a holy shroud. He says in 1349, it was burnt. And then he says some years after it reappeared or was replaced by another. I mean, that's kind of vague, actually. But um, and then he says this other cloth. Uh, subsequent to 1349 and prior to 1375 was simply a copy of the, the Shroud of Turin. And then um, there's a priest uh, uh, named Arthur Barnes, and he had had a book um, in the 30s, I think, and he wrote some, some articles as well in the 30s. And he wrote a whole article um, 
and I read the the excerpt from the article from what I put in my article last night, and it's very confusing. He talks about copies. He claims Joffrey Ducharney made a copy. Um, another priest claims that his wife Jean de Verge is is I, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. De Verge, Verge. No, I think it's uh, Verge. Yeah, Verge. Verge. Thank you. Uh, that she made the copy, and. Um, so it gets very confusing with these copies. So that's why I asked the question. It's like, well, could if there was a, if there were copies, could one of these actually be what the the uh, Bishop Darcy's was was claiming um, was a painting, you know? Um, and you know, you you also were when we were talking before we started about the. Um, the anti-popes and the popes. Well, it's important to remember that Clement VII uh, was the pope in 1390 when when um, de son uh, tried to exhibit the shroud, and then he said, "You know, you can't you can't say it's the real shroud of Christ, but just a representation." Um, and um, Father Barnes makes the point that when we go further down the road, like in the 1450s, um, when, um, when Margaret de Charnay, um, owned the shroud, um, she says, he said that because the, the anti-pope reign ended after about, I think it was 1377. After that period, um, their pronouncements, carried much less weight and by that time mm. in the 1450s um you know the popes were in rome again and 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 then a lot of the popes in rome then began to um make pronouncements that they believed that the shroud was authentic so almost almost any point that you could bring up you could people on opposite sides of the aisle making points um and so the, the term lost in the mist of history um, kind of apply a lot here because there's just so many versions. Um, and I had mentioned um, Jack Marquardt before and his book, uh, The Hidden History of the Shroud of Turin. And um, his book has an excellent um, appendix where he goes through 12 different hypotheses of where the shroud uh, was in those missing years, 1204 to about uh, 1355. And what's really nice about it is that he lays out very succinctly all the hypotheses, who uh, gave them. And then he's got a section at the end um, of each hypothesis saying the, uh, the deficiencies that are involved. And um, he actually, has his own hypothesis. He's written a lot of papers and presented at conferences, and he even listed some deficiencies of his own theory or hypotheses, uh, uh, which I thought was kind of cool because not, you know, very few people go on record of saying, "Well, here's my theory, but here's what's weak about it." <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I, to be honest, I was trying to decide where the strongest historical evidence is. And I see 
bona fide historians, as I said, on both sides of the aisle. And, you know, to be totally honest, I, I, I'm not, I don't think I have a favorite uh, theory. I think they all have their strong points and they all have some weak points. And um, I, I think we just kind of have to wait for historians to sort it out better. And, and, and we can hope, I think, that, um, you know, more historical documents are found that have been mm. undiscovered. Um, and, and, you know, maybe we'll, we'll know more in the future. But I always make the point, you know, a lot of historians, obviously, for good reason, are, are big on original documents. But I always make the point to people that, um, you know, historical documents uh, can be forged. Um, in fact, uh, there's a reference in some of these theories that are related to what we're talking about, that the shroud was sent to Athens in 1206. Mm. Some people accept that that, that is a historical document. But I've read other historians that said that, that that's a fake that the actual letter is a fake. So um, documents can be forged, documents can be missing, and some things and some historical facts may have never been documented in the first place. So as much as, you know, you, you, you try to find all the, obviously all the historical documents, but even, even that has its weak point. Um, and, yeah. and you have to look at it in the context of, of other disciplines as well. I, and I'm not sure any, any one discipline can make or break the trout. It's really a combination of, of all the data. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think you're so right about that. It's, it's, it's the culmination of everything, even the scientific data, you know, if you take this test and that test and, you know, Ray Rogers with his vanillin in the lignin, and then you have uh, the carbon 14, and then you have this and that, all of those, all of those pieces kind of come together to either, you know, disprove or, or prove the authenticity mm -hmm. of the, of the shroud. And in the same thing, in this case, uh, I was talking to, uh, Mario Latendras, and uh, and he basically said more or less the same kind of thing. You need a handful of different historical references because some of them can be forgeries, some of them can be uh, wrong or written wrong or dated wrong or whatever. There can be all kinds of little things that kind of uh, confuse the the right. actual history that that took place, and um, uh, and and I think as well, you know, when when you talk about the uh, the shroud. Uh, there's no question that over at least the last, you know, 500 years, there have been copies made of the shroud, and uh, those copies exist, and and they've been, you know, they're in different churches or in different possession of whatever, and and uh, you know, so there's no reason to think that there weren't copies made, and uh, so when you think about the Baison Son, the shroud and Baison Son. Uh, whether that was a copy or not, or whether it was the real one or replaced by a copy, there's all kinds of, I think there could be all kinds of hypotheses that uh, could help historians and syndenologists mm -hmm. kind of come up with what is maybe the most likely scenario. It's doubtful we'll ever get a 100% knowledge of what happened, but at least we'll get maybe one right. or two that are most likely scenarios of what, what actually right. happened. And by the way, I think before I mistakenly said, um, when I was talking about the shroud in the 1450s, I think I said Margaret of Austria. Um, it was actually uh, Margaret 
Descharny still at this, this point. Margaret of Austria yeah. was from the House of Savoy and and um, she had she owned the shroud um, yeah. in the uh, fifth, late 1400s, early uh, 1500s. Yeah, so no, you did right say uh, uh, Marguerite de Charny, and and I think she was also. You mentioned a couple of names as well, Jean de Jean de Vergy. I think she was a uh, a successor of his, and um, and then you have the uh, Jeffrey de, de uh, uh, what's his what's his name is Jeffrey de, de Charny, and uh, and all of those kind of come together. Uh, and, and there's a lot of confusion as to, like you said, did Jeffrey de Charny, um, did he commission a handful of copies to be made? Mm. If it really is the shroud, then people would like to have, uh, you know, a copy of it because there's some value right. in having that copy. Mm -hmm. So uh, there could be, you know, a whole bunch of different things that were either documented or not. And by the way, I also uh, wanted to mention that um, uh, Bishop Darcy's um, he was the, the the bishop around 1389 when Geoffrey de Charny II was trying to exhibit the shroud. Um, the successor to him, who was a, a, a man named Bishop Louis, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's R A G U I E R. He claimed that he believed the shroud was authentic. Now he, I think he immediately succeeded uh, Darcy. So you know the. When the when the skeptics say, "Oh, Bishop Darcy said it was a fake," you know, um, they they probably don't even know about his successor, much less uh, you know mention it. But mm. you you have to you know you just can't take one little fact and and take it out of context. I mean, you you got to look at the the history at the time, the history that preceded it, and what happened afterwards. You know, it's not yeah. as simple as the skeptics make it. And that's why I agree with you, you know, Jack uh, Marquardt's book, where he looked at, you know, the various hypotheses. And then, you know, you come up with a hypothesis and you say, well, here, here, here's where it could be right. Here's where it could be wrong. I thought that's a, a very valuable way to look at it. Mm -hmm. And it, and it helps, I think, to, uh, to, to lead to further study. So, you know, hey, I, you know, I, I'm pretty certain, or we're all pretty certain about this, but here are a couple of questions where it might be right. wrong or might need to be slightly improved. And I think that's a, that's a great way for syndenologists, especially on something that's this valuable, uh, to improve the overall history of what we know and the knowledge base of what we have concerning the shroud. Yeah. And Jack actually mentions uh, in those 12 hypotheses that uh, some of them are kind of combinations of some of the other ones. So yeah. <laughs> it gets, gets even more complicated. So uh, I'm always amazed when, you know, when I listen to Mario or, or any uh, historians on podcasts and stuff, and it's, and I, they rattle off these names and dates. I mean, I can remember a few of them here or there, but it's like some of these people, it's like, how do you remember all these <laughs> historical facts, with, yeah. which yep. we assume are facts, but they may be, you know, maybe not as certain as, as some of them would like to think. But yeah, exactly. Uh, well, the only know. one I know for certain is my wife's birthday. After that, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Forgot your own too, huh? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Let's see. Was it then or when, when was that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, well, that was uh, uh, very interesting. So um, could you talk a little bit about uh, the, the uh, what is believed to be the Shroud of Turin, how it, uh, uh, how it was presented and exhibited in Lyrae and, and then maybe a little bit before and after that? 
Okay, so um, Geoffrey de Charnay the first, although, you know, now I just read recently where um, it's questioned whether the Geoffrey de Charnay in 1389 was actually the son of Geoffrey de Charnay the first. I'm, yeah, I, nothing is sacred. Yeah, you know, that's <laughs> even being questioned. I, I think most assor most researchers assume that the Geoffrey de Charny II was the actual son of, of mm. the Geoffrey de Charny from 1355 or 1354. So he tried to, um, or he did exhibit the shroud you know, around 1354. And the bishop at that time was uh, Bishop uh, uh, Henri de Poitier. Okay. And then the hubbub began in 1389 when uh, de Poitiers' uh, successor, Darcy's, uh, tried to prevent the second Joffrey from also exhibiting the shroud. And Darcy's claimed that his the predecessor, Henri, had found the actual artist that had made the shroud. And, um, you know, the, that isn't straightforward as it sounds either, because um, Darcy was trying to raise money for his uh, cathedral. I think there was a, a fire or something in the cathedral, and he yep. was trying to rebuild it. Yep. So and the choir and a lot of the yeah. roof and uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of damages were there. So, um, you know, the Geoffrey II went over. Darcy's head and got permission from the anti-pope Clement VII to exhibit the shroud. And so there might have been an ulterior motive there. It's like he was going to lose any contributions related to a, a possible exhibition of the shroud. So it may not have been a just, you know, a pure, pure motive of saying the shroud's a fake um, and, and, you know, and it shouldn't be done. But um, Henri, um, you know, in 1356 had wrote, uh, had written a glowing um, piece about Geoffrey de Charnay, who was killed the next year in 1357. And when, when he did the report, he didn't say anything negative about Geoffrey. So if Darcy's was correct and that, um, you know, he claimed that Joffrey I was was trying to exhibit a fake. You would have thought that Henry would have mentioned something in his glowing report of 1356, but he didn't. So that's mm -hmm. you know that's another thing you got to look at and and ask some some questions. And it's it's it can get complicated with with the multi layers of of things going on. So the uh, shroud was exhibited at Loray around 1354. And then, um, like I say, the the first historical really, really written document comes out uh, with the, the Darcy's memorandum of, we always say circa 1389, because his memo is undated. It's uh, It was never sent uh, to the Pope, to the anti-Pope. Um, and there's a reference in, to, to Bishop Henry within the, the text of the document saying about 
about 34 years previously, which puts it in that um, 1355 range. So for a while, it was known as uh, the Shroud of Luray. And then um, eventually it was, um, it stayed for a while in Chambéry, France, where it was in the fire in 1532. And then it was brought to uh, Turin in 1578. And at that point became known as the Shroud of Turin. And it's been there ever since, except for uh, a short period during World War II when it was moved to a Benedictine monastery to save it from um, the Nazis. Yeah. Uh, Hitler was was trying to get his hands on it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, and that uh, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, and yeah, and thank you for that. Um, now, the other thing that's also kind of interesting is now you mentioned uh, Othon de la Roche and the potential path that the shroud may have taken through Athens in 1205, 1206, and then potentially later. So Othon de la Roche, he was, uh, his home was actually in uh, Rigny, I think it's Rigny, France, which is not too far from Liray. And, uh, you know, so it could be that it went that way. One of the other hypotheses is that it was uh, purchased by, uh, I think it was King Louis uh, mm -hmm. from, I think it's Bonifaci, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the king of Constantinople at the time. And, uh, and then it went that way to Paris and then it went uh, over to Liray to, uh, as a gift to mm -hmm. uh, Geoffrey de Chauny the first. Yeah, I, one of the articles I was reviewing um, is by Ian Wilson, which most people will be familiar with as one of the prominent Shroud historians, and uh, he presented a uh, pa paper in, um, uh, I think it was Valencia, Spain in 2012 called Discovering More of the Shroud's Early History, and that can be found uh, berries, berries of wonderful site shroud.com um, has some of the papers there and it should be there. But I noticed um, he mentioned a name that wasn't on my radar at all. Um, and he says, um, I'm going to read it from the, the paper. He says, accordingly, I believe it to be a possibility worthy of at least some serious consideration that the original first Frenchman to whom the shroud was entrusted may have been not Geoffrey de Charnay, but instead the higher born Edward de Beaujau, and that is spelled uh, B E A U J U E. So um, I just throw that out mm. there for any historians that mm. might want to dig further into that. Uh, but Edward de D E Beaujau, B E A U J U E. Um, so that's a new name that uh, yeah, I, yeah. I was previously unaware of till Wilson brought it up. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that name and uh, very interesting. Now, does, uh, does it say where he's from? Um, let's see. It says he fought with Joffrey uh, during the Smyrna campaign. Um, I don't know where he was born. I don't think it says that. Um, but they fought together in yeah. this, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. And, um, you know, one of the things too, is, uh, as I was talking with uh, Mario Latendres was he said, there's still surprisingly a lot of documents that have not yet been, mm -hmm. I don't know, cataloged, read or uh, digitized mm -hmm. or whatever, so that, mm -hmm. you know, they can be made available uh, more generally. So, 
you know, maybe there are, is a, an interesting research path that could turn up some new, right. uh, some new lines of, yeah. of, uh, of another hypothesis on how the shroud mm -hmm. got from, uh, you know, from Constantinople, uh, then up to, uh, Lee Ray and then up over to, uh, Turin. Yeah. Mario actually favors what's called the Saint-Chapelle hypothesis. Yeah. Um, so he thinks that, um, that the Mendelian, um, was the shroud and when he thought thinks it was seeded from king louis the ninth by uh, baldwin um and he, he thinks it was kept in an original uh byzantine reliquary for about a century um he, he's also mario reads french he's got the french uh, heritage and so he can read those Fr uh, documents in french um and he studied the invent the record uh uh, relics the inventory mm. and um he claims that the last um inventory taken before the french revolution indicates that the mendelian cloth was um no longer in the reliquary um and so he he believes um you know the mendelian was actually the shroud that's also obviously debated by a lot of people as well yeah yeah, yeah. You know, and when you talk about that, the uh, so the Mandelian was uh, believed to be uh, an image, a cloth image uh, in Edessa, which is modern day eastern Turkey in San Liorfa. Mm -hmm. And it um, it's interesting. There's a couple of different theories then as how it got from Edessa to Constantinople. One line of uh, research I would love to do is there seems to be, you know, a little bit more proof, uh, well, a lot more proof that the, um, you know, the, um, uh, the emperor at the time in Constantinople sent an army over to Edessa to pick up the shroud and buy it from the Muslims and then bring it back. And uh, one thing would be interesting is if that was the case, and if he paid a king's ransom for it, which is, you know, tons of, of silver or hundreds of pounds of silver and gold, then you would think there would also be some kind of a receipt or history mm. on the other side. Yeah, that the Muslims uh, would have also said, hey, we just received this and it just went into the into the treasury or it went somewhere. Mm. And uh, and so there would be a receipt for for all of that gold and silver that might have come up. And, you know, so there that would be another interesting way to prove that, yes, this is how the shroud got from Edessa over to Constantinople. And then there's proof on the other side that, yes, there was money mm -hmm. traded for it. Yeah, if, if the viewer uh, can find online and I know I have it in one of um, in fact, my documented history or documented references, the, the new article that I added. If, if they look up uh, a couple of the articles by Pam Moon in the um, uh, basically the references section of, the, of that postscript, um, there's a, a, a rendition of the, the cloth coming to Constantinople in, in 944 um, or 945. Yeah, no, um, I think it's 944. 944, yeah. And um, you could see uh, so a person presenting to the, I guess, the emperor, what, what appears to be a very long cloth, and there's sort of like a disembodied head on top of the cloth. I mean, it, it obviously isn't clear to, to, to reality in terms of 
what it's it's trying to depict you could tell there's some there's some artistic license being used here and the only thing that to me that really makes sense is that they're trying to depict a long cloth with an image on it that includes a head mm. um and i think that's um one of the um strong points to show that a long cloth with an image came to constantinople in 944 and um you know as russ braille often likes to point out um you know after it was sacked after the shroud was sacked in 1204 um we it's it's easy to make a link between that cloth and what arrived in 944 so you know the, the then you start seeing how the carbon date is off by not only 70 years if you take the 1204 or whatever, but you have to add another 300 years to go back to the 944. So I think there's a there's a strong case, I believe, um, and Dan Scavone has written many detailed articles about the the evidence for the shroud being Constantinople in 944. And so I think the you got the image of Edessa around the sixth century, and then it's taken to Constantinople and becomes known as the Mendelian. Many people think the Mandelian is the shroud. We have the missing gap between 1204 and 1354, and that can be uh, plausibly, um, you know, um, explained depending on your hypothesis. Obviously, it's not as as solid as we'd like to be, but once you put in those gaps, um, you know, you you do have um, a pretty solid history, at least from the sixth century. And then you got some prehistory before the sixth century that's pretty strong. I've got references in my documented uh, references paper that mm. from the second, even through the second through the, the fifth centuries, where there's references, not necessarily to the shroud with an image on it, but there's references to, to burial linens and, and um, that could be the Shroud of Turin. Mm. So while the, the history is not as strong as you, you'd like it to be, you can certainly make a, a, a plausible case for the Shroud going back all the way to the first century. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, even in uh, Paul in chapter three, uh, you know, there's potentially a, a indirect, direct kind of reference to some kind of an image. You know, you have seen the image and um, and so there's potentially references in the Bible that it, uh, after the after the the tomb and uh, and being and the linens being discovered in the tomb, and then to your point as well, there's also indirect uh, images that are uh, there's a Syrian uh, Pantocrator image I think from the 500s. Mm -hmm. There's the uh, in the Hagia Sophia uh, Cathedral in in Constantinople there, which was built in the 500s 600s. There's an image in there that references or looks like the image from the shroud. There's all kinds of coins, and so there are many, many direct in mm -hmm. indirect images that really look like they are uh, that they are pre 1260 to 1390 of the of the carbon dating. Right. Yeah, I'd, I'd also recommend. Uh, uh, there's a researcher named Larry Stalley, S-T-A-L-L-E-Y, and he has some really good papers uh, that, that touch on those sorts of uh, matters, uh, and they're they're very erudite. He he knows Greek well, and and he's got tons of footnotes. And um, you know, uh, 
searching on academia is not is is um, precise as I'd like it to be. <laughs> and uh, by the way, if you could uh, if you go to my page and try to do a, a word search on you know on a particular word for a title, good luck with that. Sometimes you'll get it'll it'll find it, and then two minutes later it won't. I happened that that happened to me last night. I was searching on it. Kind of drives me nuts, but um, yeah. Anyway, Larry has some very good papers, uh, you know, papers like, you know, is, is the sign of Jonah related to the yep. shroud? You know, was Jesus talking about the shroud there? And and he talks about the Galatians 3.1, uh, you know, you you who before your eye, your very eyes, he uh, um he was crucified. The you know, there there seems to be a reference to an, mm. an image that that he's referring to. Uh, Larry does a whole paper on that, I think. And um, I, I also recommend a lot of his papers. Uh, yeah, yeah he has a lot of uh, good non-canonical books that he can reference from, you know, the, the early couple of centuries there that, that were written that have different references. And I think of the signs of Jonah uh, is one of them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's um, tons of good material out there to read. You could, you know, it's it's really almost like a a full-time job just trying for yeah. me just trying to keep up with all the the materials that come out and i'm glad i'm retired yeah well so, i uh i wish i were retired so i could mm -hmm. spend more time on it i i find it so fascinating mm -hmm. and there are, i've got a whole list of things that mm -hmm. i want to read and i unfortunately mm -hmm. i just can't get to it now yeah. um uh, so now just one last uh, question you mentioned the gaps in the early history you said you wrote a paper on that maybe you could tell us a little bit about it the paper is titled gaps in the early history of the Shroud of Turin, do they disauthenticate it? Right. So that that will not be listed as a separate article. That was an I, I had intended to, to to list that on Academia as a separate article, and as I said, um, I kind of held it back. Um, but after after Jack's book was published, I decided to. Um, just add it to my documented references paper because it fit in pretty well. Um, and so that's uh, a postscript on, on my paper. And one of the points I wanted to make with that is, you know, skeptics and maybe even some Christians will say, oh, come on, if the, if the shroud really existed, don't you think the historical record would be stronger? And, you know, that's kind of a natural reaction. I think you would think something that valuable, um, you would be able to, you know, people that had it would would keep records and stuff. But as we said, you know, sometimes history is not uh, written down like we would have liked it to have been. And I one of my main points in this in this article slash postscript uh, is that I was amazed. I did a Google search um on missing valuable historical objects and you'd be amazed at how many important objects in history have been lost some of them have been recovered and some haven't so um you know the shroud is really no different it's been through fires and wars and looting and you know family dynasties and you know with all the concomitant uh politics and, and, and things going on, um, you know, I'd almost be suspicious if, if somebody said we did have a solid history for every second, you know, uh, of the shroud from whatever date you might pick. So, um, 
you know, history is is so fascinating because it's it's so, it has always has so many twists and turns, mm. and of course the, the the shroud does as well. But that uh, article has um, uh, and basically in the references section a lot of good articles, a lot of them that are online, and a couple videos, good videos as well, YouTube videos. Russ Brill does a nice. Um, Mm-hmm. A video called the Shroud of Turin Art Icon or Relic. Uh, people may want to take a look at that. But, um, you know, I, the one thing that really kind of gets under my skin is is so many people that, that dispute the Shroud, um, you know, do little or no homework, you know, and they just kind of make, it's easy to make, your your voice heard on the internet because all you have to do is do a podcast or yep. or make a comment on a on a video or something and i, I had an interesting one the other day a, a, a guy claimed on um father dalton's recent uh pod uh, video which is just absolutely phenomenal it's oh, over it's three great. hours i yeah. recommend everybody listen to that and this one guy posted something about adult fantasies and this and that and the other. And, and I, I posted a comment to him. I said, well, if this is so silly to you, why, why are you even bother listening to it? And he wrote a comment back saying something like arguing from ignorance is not a strong position. And I said, how was that asking a question, uh, you how know, funny. arguing from ignorance? And I says, I, and by the way, I'm not ignorant. I've written a couple of books, dozens of articles. And I've spent countless thousands of hours over 45 years. How much time have you spent studying the shroud? And surprisingly, I did not get a reply from him. So, <laughs> I don't know uh, why not. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing too, that's interesting and sorry, uh, I, that is funny. And, uh, you know, and even on my podcast, I get a lot of those comments as well. But, uh, you know, going back to the gaps, um, you know, you do have people that want to either steal it or destroy it. So you mm-hmm. have, let's say, Hitler that wanted to steal it and take it back to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to Nazi Germany. You have early on even the Romans and potentially even the Sanhedrin that would have wanted to destroy sure. it. And so it had to be hidden and it had to be very Absolutely. carefully guarded and, and not that many people could see it. And then you have other kind of politics. You've got the iconoclasm in Constantinople where the uh, exhibition of the shroud and and even potentially the coins of having a, uh, you know, an image of Jesus on it uh, was uh, thought to have brought on earthquake earthquakes and what have you. And, Mm. and so then they, they had to hide it after that. So uh, there are all kinds of reasons as to why there would be, or could be gaps that are very easily explainable based on, the uh you know the events of the day right absolutely the, both the romans and the jews would have loved to destroy the shroud right off the bat so it's not surprising that they would have hit it and maybe who knows maybe they didn't even mention the image in the gospels because they didn't want to draw yeah. extra attention to it yep you know yep yep exactly so um uh, yeah, fascinating. And uh, yeah, thank you for uh, bringing that up. And I think you're right. I think hopefully at some point, uh, you know, as uh, as the research continues and the various papers get researched and digitized and brought to the brought to light that, you know, we can all see that uh, hopefully more of these gaps will be narrowed and narrowed right. and, and narrowed. Right. Um, uh, before we close, anything else you'd like to uh, mention? Um. 
I think most people are aware of it, but if you're not, uh, make sure you you visit Barry's Barry Schwartz's site, www.shroud.com. Barry was the documenting photographer for the uh, 1978 STIRP team. Um, it's the best shroud site on the planet. Um, you can spend the rest of your life there if you're not careful, but uh, do check that out. Uh, some great, great materials there. And um, I would, again, just my my pet peeve, if, if you're going to, if you're going to do some shroud research of any kind, make sure you, you know, you put in the time that's needed. Uh, I'm not saying everybody has to, you know, spend most of their time on it like I do or anything, but I just, everyone, I would love to hear uh, more people say when they give their opinion about the shroud, it's uh, something to the effect that, well, you know, I haven't studied it a lot. Uh, I'm going to defer to the experts or I'll have to do more reading. No, most people just give their opinion and expect yeah. you to accept their view without any solid evidence that they're presenting about it. Yeah. And, and without any solid re research backing it up. Right. Uh, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Joe, thank you uh, so much. Uh, it's always fascinating to talk with you and uh, I really appreciate the time that you took today and uh, look forward to all of the research as you bring it forward. Uh, again, just to remind uh, folks his, if you'd like to sign up for Joe's email newsletter, that's at jmarino240 at aol.com jmarino240 at aol.com. And otherwise, uh, his papers are on uh, academia.edu, and you can find them at independent.academia.edu slash Joe Marino, and capital J, capital M, and all one word. So independent.academia.edu slash Joe Marino. And with that, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you'd like this one, please rate it with five stars. Thank you so much. And thank you, Joe. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate you having me. Good to see you. Absolutely.